Hello, Real Talk listeners. We are in episode two of The Voice of HR, our series for April. And we had the opportunity to meet with Jenny Blackwell, um, who is in learning and development within her organization. And Jenny's going to talk to us about her perspective of L&D, L&D in the workforce, what we do well and what we could do better. But first, let's meet Jenny. Jenny, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, I'm very happy to be here. So thank you for having me. This is my first podcast ever, so that's exciting. This is my 20th anniversary in training and development. If you can believe it, I am that old. So um, 20 (laughs) years this year, um, I got out of college with a degree in elementary education, decided I really didn't like children that much and found myself in the HR world, uh, right out of college at 21 years old, I got a job at a small, uh, textile company called Milliken and started there my professional career and found a niche in training and development and have stuck. So that's where I have, that's what I've been doing for 20 years. And so I'm excited to talk about it. Got lots to say and lots of opinions. You know what? Cause you know, as a listener of the show that we are full of opinions, And so when we can bring other people on to give a a difference of opinion, I think there's nothing but value in that because ultimately what we're trying to do with this podcast is bring up the issues that HR maybe ignores or hasn't been in a position to do different. And then, you know what, Jenny, sometimes we just have this podcast so we can gripe about stuff that gets on our nerves as HR professionals. But this one is it. This series is really dedicated to help you understand what good looks like and what some of the common mistakes are. So let's go straight out of the bat. But you know what? With Sam last week, I started soft. So I'll start soft with you. What does good look like in a relationship between L&D and the business? I would say that if there is a good relationship between the business and L&D, it would mean that the business actually trusts the L&D professional on the best strategies and the best ways to develop, to implement, to deliver learning and development. I think that uh, sometimes everybody thinks they're a trainer. Everybody thinks they're an expert. And so when the business trusts their learning and development professionals, I think that is a, a good case that you probably have a great relationship. You know, it's funny. I think you nailed it. Every human, just because they have the capacity to breathe, pretty much thinks training is easy. Actually, I remember my progression through training. So I started as an operator. I was really good at the job and I was really patient. And so our location was a training store for the rest of the region. And they would always partner people with me because I didn't get frustrated really easy. So that's where I started. Somebody noticed. Um, he came through. I trained him. He went on to become a regional leader. He reached out and said, why aren't you a trainer? And convinced me to apply for training. So I went from an operator to a facilitator. And then I went into the back end instructional design, kind of developing 
content. And I remember the following phrase. I wouldn't know if you've ever heard this before. Has anybody ever told you? Those who can't teach. Have you ever heard that? You've never heard that? No, I, I've not. I have not heard this. It, it was that it. Those who can't. Those who can't teach? do teach. Those who oh. can't do. <laughs> yes, I have. Comma. Oh. Sorry, I should put my punctuation in there. Those who can't do, comma, <laughs> teach. Got it. Have you heard that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yes. And I and and I could probably provide some examples of that being true. So what? <laughs> Look, um, yeah. I but but you know what the thing is, I think that is the root of kind of what builds that belief that anybody can train, right? If I can write words on a piece of paper, I can write training content. If I can, like with no work behind the scenes, what are some things that you really studied to make sure that you could implement training that's effective? Well, I think that's a million dollar question because I've said this a bunch throughout my career, a very early in my career, I was teaching train the trainer courses. And that's the deal, right? It's like, I need people who can train. So let me put them through your train the trainer class, thinking that on the other side of my train the trainer class, they would actually be good trainers. And um, although I think a a well-designed train the trainer class can help people improve their skills and training abilities, I do not believe that it makes good trainers. So I have always said that being a trainer, being a teacher is a gift that some people were born with and some people were not. Um, I can see that in my mom and dad. My mom is a fantastic teacher, very patient, has the ability to break things down in digestible chunks and explain them in a way I understand where my father, mm, uh, he knows a lot. He's probably the smartest man I've ever met, but explaining it to others, not really his forte. So, um, I think that the ability to teach and break things down and explain things in a way that people understand is definitely more of a gift than a learned skill. There are definitely, I would agree, there are definitely some things that people need to have, but outside of just a training. In our last episode with Sam, we actually talked about, I always call it the magic pixie dust. And it's, it feels like it's all of training, right? How many times have you had a leader call you, whether it's a train the trainer situation or any other, and they're like, this employee's not doing their job. They need to go back through that training class. Like, we're just going to sprinkle some magic pixie dust on them, and they're going to walk away from class brilliant. Never works. Sorry, agreed. 100%. Like, a lot of things is very reactive and you're absolutely right. We're instead of, instead of being proactive, doing gaps analysis, figuring out the strategy within the organization and where we can really make a impact in training. We're instead just being reactive and problem solvers. We're, we're finding small gaps or small problems in the organization and saying so-and-so made just like your example with the ship. That's such a great example. You know, we had an employee who had a forklift accident, so we need to retrain the entire organization on forklift safety, um, and have a safety stand down meeting and talk about the accident and make sure everybody goes through a driving test and just 
overkill for something that I don't think is very value add to address that one incident. So agree, very reactive. Yeah, for sure. I don't think people really think through what as as an L&D professional, what you put in it, like even like you said, from the gap analysis, it's almost like a good L&D person is whether they worked in operations or not, they learn operations because they have to become multifaceted. They you have to think through every possible thing that could have caused the problem in order to decide is training the right solution. So you sort of, it's almost like crossing things off the list. Like, was it a process problem? Was it a system problem? Was it technology problem? Was it a people problem? And you sort of start to cross everything off the list. And then you go, okay, yes, in this case, I think we had a gap in training. I find when training is requested, it's totally coming from a good place. Usually Um, it's coming from a place of if I put more into this person, then they'll be able to do this better. But I've also seen some rare instances where training becomes punishment. Um, Have you ever been a part of an environment where training was a punishment because you didn't do stuff well? So funny. You said that um, there was a course I was teaching on conflict resolution. And as soon as the HR group knew that I was teaching that course, every time they had an employee conflict that they were dealing with, uh, they would say, you know what, you need to go through Jenny's conflict resolution class because this is not the way you handle conflict and you did not do a good job handling conflict. So I would find myself teaching courses to an audience of people being punished. I mean, literally my course was the punishment (laughs) for them um, getting, not handling conflict correctly at work. Uh, So, uh, and that makes for a very disengaged audience, if nothing else. (laughs) Yeah. And could build a reputation that training is something you go to when people are looking at you poorly or your boss sees mistakes in you for sure. It is, I could talk about, I sigh because I could talk about the challenges in L&D for days, for days. But there, there really are some mistakes that stick out that we make that encourage our business partners within the business to react in these ways that frustrate us. And I'm going to pause for a second. I usually tell people when I say things that might piss someone off, don't send me emails because I'm not going to read them. I actually do read my emails, guys. But please know that when I say we in L&D do things, I'm not even talking about you. I might be talking about somebody who did it when the L&D department was created in that company and now you've inherited it, right? So it's not necessarily that it's a result of your behavior. But Jenny, when you look at some of the mistakes that we make in learning and development, what stands out the most? Well, I mentioned when I was introducing myself that I'm celebrating my 20th year anniversary in learning and development. And, um, and I have to say, I've been guilty of this myself, but all 20 years of those of that experience has been in manufacturing. And I think 
L and D, at least in my experience, created a bad reputation for itself by focusing all of its attention on compliance. Compliance is a, is a huge topic in, in most manufacturing facilities. And I think in a world 20 years ago, before uh, learning management systems existed, while you were trying to manually track training, manually deliver all training face-to-face, and just doing those really non-value-added tasks, trying to keep up with that and keeping up with the compliance was literally a full-time job. And at some point, I believe that became the reputation that L&D, at least in manufacturing, in my experience, became a compliance driven and just a single faceted little area uh, where we did compliance training and that was it. Uh, With all the new automation that that L&D has, all of the different delivery methods and all the venues that are available to us now, I think It's much easier for an L&D department to now venture off way beyond compliance, even beyond technical training and on-the-job training to more soft skills, to more leadership, things that we may not have um, had the ability or the capacity to, to participate in a decade ago. Yeah, and I think for some industries, um, some places in retail and definitely manufacturing, I've seen this, is we're now in a place where we have a group of employees who are great or good at the job we taught them to do, right? But now technology is changing, increasing um, IA is being brought into organizations. And we have an entire labor force that needs to be reskilled, but all we'd focused on up until now is compliance. And, And so now these employees are behind the curve ball, if you will, because we were stuck in that compliance mode. Yeah. True that, Michelle. So, Jenny, any other standouts, any other things that just frustrate you from an L&D perspective? Other than everybody thinking they're better at my job than me. Um, (laughs) Let's see. (laughs) I laugh Um, because it is the truest statement ever spoken. (laughs) Well, I'm only saying this, and and I don't know if if this should make it into the podcast or not, but I'm only saying this because I recently experienced it. But um, when organizations who don't want to invest in learning and development, this is a sore point for me because they want you to fix all their problems, just as you introduced us uh, at the beginning of of our job, um, our our magic fairy dust, and we need to sprinkle it on everybody and make them perfect performers by going through our training. But yet we have no money and you cannot spend any money and you cannot buy anything and there's no resources, just figure out a way to do it. And so that magic fairy dust really becomes magical when you are doing it all for, for no dollars. So um, that's very frustrating for organizations to have a learning and development department who say they value it and they value the development of their employees and, and employees are their number one asset, but then give no, put no investment towards the learning and development programs or department. So it's funny that actually segues into something that I'm going to bring up as well. But, you know, I like to tell stories. So I'm going to have to tell you why these all connect in my brain because sometimes people think I'm weird. 
many years ago, we were doing facilitation. Um, I was doing some facilitation for frontline employees in sales training. And we were trying to help them understand that when a customer comes to purchase something, they are driven by one primary value driver and that there were basically three value drivers. People either care about time, they care about money, or they care about quality. And there'll always be one that is more important than the others. Um, And very rarely can you get all three, right? And so you talked a little bit about money and how people want to do it super cheap. Um, But there are consequences. And that's really what we tried to get people to understand in that class is if you're going to do it super cheap, you're probably going to sacrifice time. It might take longer to get it done. And you're definitely going to sacrifice quality, right? Or in the example that frustrates me, which is do it faster. A colleague that I worked with before was trying to write a financial course. He was trying to teach uh, new leaders or new managers how to read their income statement and what was most important on on their income statement. And as you can imagine, that is totally boring content, totally boring. Even if you like that stuff, nobody wants to read that, right? And so he kept getting pushed back. Are you done with this? Are you done with this? Are you done with this? And finally, he looked at me at lunch one day and he was like, I don't just pull words out of my ass. It doesn't work that way. And that's something that I don't think people think about because the world can talk 100 miles a minute. I think there's this belief that you can just free flow words on a piece of paper and have training written and it makes sense just instantaneously. And it doesn't work that way because first of all, it has to be written for the audience and the audience's learning needs. It has to be written in a way that's engaging, that people will continue to read it. And it's just, it's impossible, right? And so in that same example, if they were going to force him to write it quicker, they were going to sacrifice quality because he wasn't going to be able to do it in a way that kept people engaged. He wasn't going to be able to think through, does that sound better? Should I tell a story here? How do I link this to the previous thing? All of those things that you do, um, that you've been doing for 20 years, those get pushed aside. And so as a result of it, you might get it faster, but you're definitely getting it worse or with less quality. I couldn't agree more. So I think the same exact thing I've experienced in my past, uh, for example, uh, leadership training. Leadership training is extremely important for every organization as it should be. And there are, I don't know, thousands and thousands of companies out there that specialize in developing and creating leadership training. They have been doing it for decades and decades. They have mastered it. They have reinvented it. They have done it in a million different ways and perfected leadership training. However, because you don't want to spend money as an organization and invest in that leadership training for your leaders You want to develop it in-house. And this, as an instructional designer, as somebody who creates exactly how you described, the, the time consumption, the effort, the resources it takes 
to develop content in a way that's um, going to be value added to do that um, and create this same training in-house that you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt exists out there for just a small transaction of money (laughs) could be available to your employees. It is a really hard pill to swallow. So you're exactly right. You're going to save the money by me creating your leadership training, but it is probably not going to be the same quality you're going to get from one of these companies who's been practicing and developing for decades. So agreed. 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 Very frustrating. If I have to ever write a leadership course or a soft skill course, or even I've had somebody ask me to write a Microsoft Outlook course, I am pretty sure Microsoft Office will write that course way better than I ever could. I am certain of it. (laughs) Pretty sure. And I'm pretty sure they've already written it, right? Oh yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's available for free. If you just go to Microsoft office online help yeah, for free micro learnings with videos and step-by-step instructions. Um, and that's just a a quick shout out to Microsoft because that's a great feature by the way, as a side note, (laughs) it is an incredible feature that most people don't pay attention to. So let's shift a little bit and let's talk to the business. So there are some things that we do in learning and development, and actually we do it in all of HR, whether you're talking about policies and procedures or a new training class, whether you're talking about trying to find a new system for employees to clock in and out, regardless of what you're talking about, we all go through this discovery phase. And often the business gets really frustrated with us because we ask a ton of questions and it feels like we're moving slow. Give me your thoughts on why or how a L&D professional can help the business understand the importance of that discovery phase. Well, I think the open-ended questioning or hounding is imperative to get the end product you're looking for. I I know exactly what you're talking about when somebody requests a, a request for a training, especially when you're trying to develop and they think they're explaining it, but from an L and D perspective, because you understand how detailed this content needs to get, you need to ask very probing questions to understand. So who, who is the audience um, that I'm trying to reach? People always forget to tell you that part, you know, Uh, what is the delivery method? Do you want this to be an online interactive training versus a face-to-face training versus a, versus a virtual training? Um, So all of these questions to try to really understand what are the objectives that you're trying to accomplish through this training so that I can be sure to, to fit those in the content. I think these questions, and, and, and I think that's probably half of being a good instructional designer is the ability to ask these type of detail and probing questions to get these responses in order to build the training effectively. I think that you nailed it with those questions. And then even going back to um, people thinking that they can do your job as well as you can. So, you know, guys, we literally, and and I'm sure there are new people to learning and development. Jenny and I combined happen to have over 50 years of experience in this particular field. So yeah, that tells you how old I am. So there you go. We also use our experience 
to help us make those recommendations, right? We're not just going, let me do a job aid because job aids are exciting. Trust me, the same way that you don't love a job aid and you guys, you might call it something different. You might call it a hot sheet. You might call it a direction. I don't even care. Work instructions, but a piece of paper that you read that tells you what to do. Same way you love them. We love them just as much, trust me, which is not at all. However, there are certain trainings that that is what the most appropriate solution is. Um, There are other trainings where having some sort of interaction, whether that interaction is virtual or in a face-to-face environment, is helpful. There are certain trainings where being able to do it in real life or in in real world or real practice is most helpful. And we're using our knowledge and our experience to help you understand the best way to do it. Because guess what? We want your employees to kick ass too. We're just trying to help you understand the best way to get them to get there. Right. I think, um, One of the most valuable things that I've learned in my experience, because I do, I mean, I guess everybody knows it, that there's not an amount of of education or formal learning that you can go through that will teach you better than experience. And, And so one of the biggest things, and I'm not sure at where in my career I got this epiphany, but I really started understanding the difference between teaching and facilitation. And I think that was a huge pivot point for me in my career when I learned the difference. It's so impactful that when I attend a course myself and I see that I am about to experience a good old fashioned teaching, I lose interest right away. I sat through a a training course uh, recently where, of course, there was a PowerPoint, but it was a great looking PowerPoint, Michelle. It was a great looking PowerPoint. And it even included some videos, some movie snippets, some snippets from some TV shows, things that 10 years ago, I would have considered an A++ in regards to face-to-face PowerPoint content. But it was all being taught. It was somebody standing in front of the classroom with a PowerPoint presentation and a little clicker remote in their hand and going through 60 slides of information and teaching us the module. That is teaching. Somewhere in my career, because I am very guilty of doing the same thing, but somewhere in my career, I realized that students or employees or participants can teach each other way better than I can teach them by standing up in front of the classroom and being able to facilitate a course by getting the audience involved and participating and discussing and sharing their own examples is much more valuable than any PowerPoint presentation or lecture that you can ever give. And I think that's just such a valuable turning point. And I think something that's something that just maybe evolves over time. I don't remember ever going through, I went back and got my master's degree in, in HR development. Don't recall ever a lesson or a course on how to be a good facilitator versus a teacher. Um, I never experienced that. So I think that's just something that's just occurred over time, watching others in my field and how they delivered content and learning that skill has been 
I mean, invaluable to me. You know, it's, um, it's interesting that you say that because I think that by helping people understand that piece, it also is a great transition to help people understand why so much thought is put into creating training. So you can oversimplify everything. And one thing that has been oversimplified to death is the importance of open-ended questions and you get more information with open-ended questions. Truth is, it depends. Like think about the last time you sat down with a preteen or a teenager and you said, how was your day? How was your day is technically an open-ended question. And their response was, that was fine, or it sucked, or same as always. You didn't get any information. So even when it comes to writing content, to try to move from that teach phase to that engaged facilitation phase isn't as easy as saying, ask an open-ended question. When it comes to the example that I just described, a better question might be to go with a closed-ended statement and say, tell me the best thing that happened to you today. Because it's hard to walk away from that. If it's a teenager, they're probably going to respond with nothing good happened. Um, And then you can go, tell me the worst thing that happened. So those are the things that we think about in learning and development, because what we're trying to do is create that engagement you're talking about where the others start participating and teaching themselves versus us telling them because all day long without fail i am telling you humans particularly adults do not do things because you say so they do things because they have decided that it's the thing to do and so by getting them involved in the training by getting them to discover it for themselves they now adopt it as the thing that should be done and they're more likely to go do it. When you don't give us the time or the money to create those types of learning environments, that's when we take shortcuts and you don't see the performance change that you're looking for. I completely agree. I was uh, just about to say uh, probably the area that I struggle with the most in regards to creativity or instructional design is I know that learning and development should, is not about skills or knowledge. It's more about how skills and knowledge is applied. It's about that behavior change. And I know that I've been doing it for 20 years, just beating my head against the wall. I know people do not come to your class and sit through your eight hour class on conflict resolution and then go out to the floor and start applying these things and then make it a habit. I know that doesn't happen. And I, I think this is one of the hardest parts about learning and development is how do we take skills and knowledge not only transfer that skill, those skills or or that knowledge to someone else, but also have them apply it. And how can we motivate them and how can we measure it? And how can we ensure that they are applying these things? Some areas, this is simple for me, for instance, with safety. Okay. I can talk about the importance of wearing eye protection and I can show 
horrible eye injuries that have happened in manufacturing because someone was not wearing the proper eye protection. And I can provide them with the eye protection and show them how to clean it, how to store it, how to wear it properly. Tell them that it's a, it's a policy of the company that they wear the safety glasses every day while they're in their work area. And I can transfer that knowledge very easily. And then I know that I can enforce that behavior through behavior-based safety audits or through recognition and rewards when someone is caught uh, wearing their safety glasses appropriately. Some things I can pretty easily transition to behaviors, but other things, it's not that easy to get that behavior change. And you would want that for every single thing you teach. I would imagine every single topic that you're creating and developing and transferring to your employees, you hope to have that important aspect tied onto the end of it. But sometimes that is so complex and so hard, challenging, I guess is the right word, challenging to to come up with. And I think that's why when I look at L&D in particular, or even OD or HR, I'll, I'll take it all the way back up to that bubble of HR, having a true partnership with that business partner where they will allow you to ask those questions, like for us to truly understand, because we don't go out and do the job every day. We don't observe the employees doing it every day. And I got to be honest with you, when we do observe them doing it, they try to do it all right, all correctly, because they think we're taking notes, right? And so by having a relationship where you will truly let us ask questions like, how do you know they're doing it right? And what does it look like when they're not doing it right? What goes wrong? And how is it measured? And by letting us dig into your world a little bit, None of it is about putting on some list or calling you out for stuff. All of it is so that we'll understand enough that we can create the structure around the training that changes performance. Like literally when you, particularly when you look at your L&D or your OD team, like every day, what you can think about when you look at us is that we are constantly thinking about what does it take to get people to perform in the right way. So if you as a leader think that that's on your mind all the time, it's on our mind all the time as well. But it means that you've got to let us inside your world if we're going to do that correctly. Agree 100%. Again, back to those, let us interrogate you a little bit. Uh, and, and it's for it's for everybody's uh, sake. That is how we can provide the best product for you is if we can and you will allow us to get into your world. So I couldn't agree more. And I would say don't assume. And there's something in my character where I tend to be able to disarm people and not come across as frightening. But what I would say is when I am interrogating you, and, and I will interrogate you, I'll call you straight out. I'm going to interrogate you. And when I'm going to do that, please trust me, there is zero judgment about the way you're doing your job. If I'm actually, if I have an opinion about 
the success or the failure of how you do your job. I'm just going to tell you that straight out. It'll have nothing to do with the discovery part of this process. Hell, I couldn't do your job because I don't do your job every day. I don't have your experience doing your job. So I'm not passing judgment on you. I'm just trying to understand how your world works. And I'm willing to bet that every L&D professional feels pretty much the same way. Absolutely. So I second that. Jenny, if you could, I want you to imagine that you inherited a dysfunctional L&D department. And by dysfunctional, I mean, maybe you don't get invited to the conversation till the end. And then suddenly you have to play catch up. Maybe uh, you don't even get to be a part of that conversation and you're just given directives. Maybe you're given no money or people don't understand the value. So just imagine any version of, I just got hired into a learning and development department that is dysfunctional. What are a few things that you would do right away to try to help change the narrative and the direction of the department? So I think the first thing is... (laughs) Jobs I've uh, come to in the past when I've been, I've worked for five different manufacturing companies at this point in my career. And every single one of them uh, that I've come into, I have noticed an extreme level of administrative tasks. And I honestly think first and foremost, if you do not digitize or automate those administrative tasks as quickly as possible, I'm unsure that you would be able to free up enough of your time to start working on the things that really matter. Things like having to deliver all training face-to-face in a classroom by yourself or having to track everything manually or make assignments, everything is manual. All of these low-value tasks, filing, manual tracking, reporting, et cetera, all of these things, if you don't find a way to digitize or automate those things right off the bat, I feel like you're going to have a hard time finding the time that you need to get involved in those those, uh, high-priority things that you were just discussing or that we've been discussing through this entire podcast, this whole talk. The next thing is you have to find a way to participate in either strategy meetings with leadership, uh, management meetings to understand operational needs, or even just walking the floor or asking employees questions to gauge their needs and employee leads and, and shop level employees, what are their needs and what are things that are happening with them? You have to find a way to weasel your way in. So if you're not being invited right away to these types of meetings and communications, you have to find a way, build relationships and find a way to get involved in these meeting so that you can understand the visions and the values and the business plan. And I think the last thing is you want to make sure that your return on investment is very high, especially starting out. If you are in an organization where they are not, where they maybe they don't value L&D like you believe they should, you need to do a couple of things 
a couple of projects right off the bat that can easily show a high ROI. And I believe if you can get a couple of those situations under your belt, then it will uh, build your reputation, build your department's reputation where now they could value you a little more and start asking for your input a little more often. I think those would be three of the things I would do right away. I love those. There you have it, listener. Great tips if you need to nurture those relationships so you can have an effective um, department where you accomplish what you want. Keep an eye out on, um, subscribe to us on social media. Keep an eye out for our lead document that will be coming out soon called the Dirty Dozen. And in that Dirty Dozen, we're going to give you the examples shared through this series, the examples of things you should not do and what you should do instead. Um, So think of it like a uh, a do, do not list. Um, And it'll be coming out and it'll be straight from the advice from folks like Jenny on this series. Jenny, I wanna thank you for hanging out with me for the past hour. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Um, It's always great talking to you, Michelle, and look forward to talking to you again soon. 